Welcome to the Positive Education Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon McGee. The Positive Education Podcast aims to engage with experts in the field of wellbeing and positive education in order to provide you with insights and strategies to advance positive education in your school environments and beyond. Today on the show, we have Dr. Lucy Hone. Dr. Hone is a research associate at AUT University. As well as having her scientific research published in leading academic journals internationally, she writes for the Sunday Star Times and Psychology Today. Having been trained by the thought leaders in the field at the University of Pennsylvania, she completed a PhD in public health at AUT. She now assists organisations from leading law and aviation firms to schools and health practitioners to design and implement wellbeing initiatives creating sustained and meaningful change. The widespread respect for Lucy's work is demonstrated by two large-scale projects she is currently running involving dozens of New Zealand schools, backed by Ministry of Education funding. The sudden death of her 12-year-old daughter, Abby, and friends in 2014 forced Lucy to turn her substantial academic training and professional practice to foster resilience in very personal circumstances. The blog she wrote in the aftermath of Abby's death attracted international attention and resulted in the best-selling non-fiction title, What Abby Taught Us, Strategies for Resilient Grieving, which is now available as Resilient Grieving in the US, UK and New Zealand. She is now much in demand as a keynote speaker and workshop presenter fostering resilience amongst diverse populations and organisations, both in New Zealand and internationally. She is a member of NZAPP's Executive Committee, a policy advisor for Canterbury's All Right campaign, the conference convener for the Positive Education New Zealand Conference and New Zealand's global representative for the International Positive Education Network. Welcome to the Positive Education Podcast. I'm very, very thrilled to have you here. Kia ora, as we say around these parts, Rhiannon. It's lovely for me to be here with you all and your listeners. I really just wanted to begin, Lucy, by hearing a little about your journey into the world of positive psychology. I believe, were you a journalist to begin with? Is that right? Yeah. And what, yeah. Brought, you to, what brought you to the map over in University of Pennsylvania? So um, like most people who end up in this field, you know, I guess I have a, it's a, it's a sort of a story of twists and turns. And mm. I began being frustrated by the use of the word resilience in 2008, where I, as a journalist, um, I remember thinking that I would do some research into what the world knew about resilience, who had it, could we build it. Um, And so I started digging around to research an article and I found the University of Pennsylvania's master's program. And I remember saying to my husband, um, hey, would it be a good idea for me to go and do that? Thinking he would say no, but unbelievably he (laughs) said, yeah, I think that's a great plan. So um, yeah, off I commuted between New Zealand and Philadelphia for Mm. that year um, in a crazy fantastic intellectually spellbinding year and um from there how how long after did you then uh, begin the journey of a phd at aut university was it directly afterwards or did you have a bit of breathing space in between (laughs) so um yeah so then my story gets kind of muddled up with 
the Christchurch earthquake. So I had just come back from Philadelphia in mm. September, really, of 2010, when our first earthquake um, hit. So I, um, I'm a Londoner, but my adopted home of 20 years is Christchurch, New Zealand. And um, that first earthquake was not really close to the city. So it hit us um, psychologically and emotionally, and it hit the people um, further west of the city. But I had, so I just sort of started thinking about my PhD at that point and had met Grant Schofield, who was to become my academic supervisor at AUT. And I had really just embarked on it, literally signed on the dotted line, when the February earthquakes hit the big, big one, in which your listeners not, might not know, but we lost 195 residents um, and um, lots of people who were at language school here, so a lot of young people, um, in the biggest disaster you know, for our city. Um, and so I put my PhD on hold then and started upon something of a kind of a resilience roadshow. Yeah. And um, I remember Grant, my supervisor, saying to me, right, well, I'll come down from Auckland, he said, and I'll come stay with you and we'll go and do this resilience roadshow. And I said to him, oh, no, 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 I don't do presentations. I don't, I've never done <laughs> presentations. I've avoided public speaking all of my life. You know, I'm that person who breaks it. And he said to me, Lucy, if you can't get out there and talk to the little old ladies of Wainomi Baptist Church, which was my first speaking gig, he said, then you're a Muppet. <laughs> so that told me. So that kind of, so I guess throughout my PhD was kind of fused with um, research and lived experience. And your, I remember, I don't know if you remember, the first time I met you, Lucy, was at the um, 2016 IPEN um, conference and I was so starstruck actually to meet you and Aaron Jarden because I'd just done my map at the University of Melbourne and I'd been sighting you all over the place. I'm like, oh, Lucy Hone, you know. Um, and I, your, your work um, through the PhD really made sense to me and really resonated actually with me um, on my own learning journey. Can you share a little bit about what your focus was through your PhD? Um, so thank you. Um, no, definitely no need to be starstruck. You know, I sort of, I'm a late life academic. I didn't, I, I was saying to someone today that really, you know, into my early 40s, I didn't know what an outcome was. I didn't know why you would be the theory of well-being because I really knew nothing. Um, but um, so my PhD, because of the earthquakes, became, mm. ended up looking at what well-being really was because mm. in that aftermath of the Christchurch earthquakes, I would be phoned by health and safety managers and occupational health um, and HR with all these people saying to me, uh, we want to do something to promote uh, well-being, wellness. I mean, they didn't even know what to call it. So my first task of my PhD became in defining um, conceptual, like looking at all the different conceptual models that are out there around well-being. Um, and I think when you're a late life contributor, you know, you've got to cut to the chase and find out what's useful. Um, and I, I think I, as I went on, realized that the, the, that in some ways, not having that curse of knowledge, not having a huge amount of steeped in decades of knowledge, in some ways can be an asset. Because I can remember thinking the things that I couldn't understand, maybe other people couldn't understand them too. It's probably why it resonated with me so much. <laughs> <laughs> And in, in the context of Christchurch and the wake of Christchurch, what, what 
you know, in all your speaking tours and in the in the research you were doing, what, what do you think really resonated with the people of New Zealand who you were coming into contact with? So I think the earthquakes um, taught me, you know, had a number of effects on me. One was that they taught me um, that grief and trauma are two different things and to be really mindful. Um, I learned a lot about trauma and recovering from trauma. And so one of the key lessons for me was the importance of re-establishing normal life as quickly as you can when you are faced with trauma. Just so that it tells your poor brainstem that the, you know, the fight or flight moment is over and it's mm. safe to return to normal life. So that was a really key learning for me. But I also would have to acknowledge that presenting um, in around positive psychology and you know doing lots of workshops to help people build their own personal and collective resilience in a time in a post-traumatic era mm. is actually much easier than doing it in normal life because people okay. get it yeah you know people Christchurch really under subtly it wasn't embarrassing or hard to talk about gratitude and the importance of looking after your neighbors because they'd lived that and they could see it um you know really face to face it was really in their faces and then of course Lucy you spoke at our PISA conference last last year at Geelong Grammar School and you spoke about your experience of losing your 12 year old daughter Abby in 2014 so not too many years later and how you had to then foster resilience in your own life, drawing on all the skills that you had learned over the course of the last few years. And I have to say that your sharing your story at PISA had such a powerful impact on the delegates there. And so often people still speak about Lucy Hone and your authenticity and, and also um, obviously your experience resonated with so many, many people there and as has your book, Resilient Grieving which really shares some of those skills and strategies that, that you put into practice. So in, in relation to that, Lucy, can, can you share for our listeners who may not be as familiar with, with your work around resilient grieving, a little of that model that has arisen out of your experience, or I believe you call it the puzzle? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it was um, obviously a life-stopping mm. time losing Abby and her best friend Ella and Ella's mum Sally who was a really dear friend of mine so you know I often describe it as that moment where your life path forks and you're forced to go down a route that I you know never imagined and certainly didn't want but having been forced down that path I was then really quite horrified and frustrated by the passive tone of all the um, grief expertise and resources we were given. And while I respect that the bereavement research and um, grief literature needs to kind of be permissive in some ways in that it needs to say to people, look, there is no way to grieve. You know, there's no correct way to grieve. Just do whatever helps you and take your time. And these are the five stages of grief and this is what you're going to feel. So I respect all that, but to me, someone who had been trained in all of the ways of thinking and acting that have been shown by a lot of studies to really help people cope when they are facing potentially traumatic events, I, of course, couldn't help but wonder how useful those strategies would be for us. And so 
I decided to, to bring what I knew about positive psychology, more about the kind of the theories and um, the ways of being um, and acting, thinking and acting, more so than the interventions. Um, I often find the interventions a bit cheesy, yeah, <laughs> a bit <me> too. <laughs> you know? um, And I get, I respect that because they're created for efficacy trials, but really yeah. in the real world, I found it was just useful knowing aspects of positive psychology, such as being really mindful about where you choose to focus your attention, understanding that we have strengths, understanding the importance of positive emotions and hope when you're going through grief and loss. And so I kind of embarked on something of a personal experiment to try and work out how useful these um, tools and ways of thinking and acting were. And I'm always at pains to point out to people that, of course, they don't remove all the misery and the pain mm. and the longing, um, but they definitely did help me navigate those really dark, dark days. Um, and I guess that is why I'm still so passionate and wedded to this work, because I have this peculiar, unique um, insight that, you know, I've done the academic research and then I've done that sort of professional application in the post-quake environment and learned kind of how to communicate it to other people hopefully in effective ways and then I've slammed myself and I had to kind of you know turn that research inwardly and and I have lots of doubts about positive psychology and positive education but eventually ultimately I come back to the fact that I truly believe there are ways of thinking and acting that can help us navigate the stuff that happens to us in our daily lives, you know, the small stuff, the big stuff. And so that's what keeps me going in this, you know, marching forward with the belief that we can help people. And you really, you really have been sharing that message quite, quite a great deal. I think in the last couple of years, at least Lucy, can you share a little bit about your work now around resilient grieving? Yeah. So, um, so I wrote um, the book, Resilient Grieving. I, mm. I can't remember, 2000 and soon after Abby died. In fact, that year I finished my PhD and then went on to write the book um, in 2015. And since then, this past year, um, we have recently, um, the Institute, so the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience, <laughs> as not your institute. <laughs> um, so... Um, the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. We have just hosted um, Dr. Tayab Rashid to oh, come to Christchurch. And Tayab and I have um, a great affinity because he has written strengths-based resilience. He has written positive psychotherapy. And so we, together with um, our team at the Institute, worked to host him and support him and the Muslim community in his time here. He worked with um, some of the community um, from who had lost family in the March 15th attack. Um, and also he worked with lots of the agencies who are working to support those people. And I'm kind of hoping that he and I and uh, our clinical, one of our clinical directors, Julie Zarifa, that she has experienced an awful lot of loss, Julie, and so that the three of us might write a book. I think the book that is the follow-up book from my book, which is a lay book, is the Health Practitioner's Guide to Resilient 
grieving because as people always say, as health practitioners always say, we weren't trained to deal with this stuff. It is that, you know, truism, I suppose, that we are not comfortable with death in our Western world and um, that, you know, certainly in my experience of loss that it's been spiritual practices and ancient wisdom that's really helped me navigate that um, and, and you know, positive psychology obviously is almost like an extension perhaps of, of those um, wisdom traditions. When you're working in this space, are you drawing on positive psychology but are you also drawing on other influences as well? Yeah, I think um, that is very true and that's what I love about working with Tayab actually um, is that um, he brings a completely different cultural lens but actually, that's one of the great gifts of being a Londoner who ended up in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is that we have a very different approach to death. And because I have, my sister moved to New Zealand way before me, so she's been here nearly 40 years. Um, when my mum died, she said we should bring my mum's body home. And at that point, I remember saying to her, are you mad? <laughs> Because she, because that's what they do in New Zealand. And so then we brought Abby home too. And we just had this really beautiful five days of having our wee girl in the house and having a procession of friends and family, Fano, we call it here, your extended family, come and yeah. visit and hang out and, you know, walk through our house, which is really traditional to these lands and the indigenous Maori people of New Zealand. And I feel really blessed to have had that because it makes me view death in a really very, very different way. I'm not scared of death and I have confronted death and I've sat with death, you know, for hours on end. And that does take away not the misery, but the mystery. It's, um, it reminds me of, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, I remember reading one of his books and um, he writes about a meditation on death, uh, meditating by staring at a, at a corpse and, you know, as a way of kind of transcending that fear and um, I think it's these rituals that perhaps we don't have to draw on as much in Western society that, yeah, help us come to terms with death, don't they? Mm, and, you, and you write about... What's that yeah, rituals. <laughs> yeah, 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 you do. You write about rituals in your, in your book, don't you? Yeah, I think rituals um, are really important um, in all yeah. aspects of our lives, you know, in our family lives, um, in our um, in our relationships. That you know, and I, while I'm not a big believer in wedding anniversaries and Valentine's days, I'm a really big believer in rituals, things that you do together. And um, and yeah, I think that's. But it was a really new thinking for me to discover that one of the ways that you could honour your dead was to have these rituals and to by through the rituals you could keep them alive in your life um and you know i still find myself thinking i know now it took me a while to know this but i know now that i'm a mother of three yeah. you know I, I kind of thought i had to become a mother of two but i now know that that's ridiculous you know she's still in my life even though she's not here and present She's, she's alive in probably every aspect of your life, I'm sure. And what, what's one of the rituals that, that keep Abby alive for you? Oh, I've got this really cute little thing. I, I, as you said that, I thought, I'm not going to be able to think of anything, but I can. <laughs> so I, often, um, um, I often sign things with five. I would have signed things with five crosses, and now I mm. replace the cross with an A at the end. Um, so I might do that on my phone as a text. I might do it on an email and I certainly would do it in a card. I wrote a 
50th birthday card to a friend the other day and I put Abby's name on the end because I thought, well, why wouldn't I? I mean, it's not like I'm deluded. I do know she's not here, but it's like, well, we are, you know, that family. So it's absolutely this card from her as well. So it's a funny way. And I, I expect some people might think it's really kooky, but I really do promise <laughs> you that I do know. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> Not delusional. <laughs> She's everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I love just, just to finish up uh, in relation to the book, I, I was just revisiting it before Lucy. And I think is it um, one that I'll use? My mum died last year and I thought uh, uh, 10 Things They Loved is that is that the I thought that was such a beautiful reflection and I think that's what I'm going to do you know soon what, what remember 10 things my mum loved you know and uh, with my family so I suppose this work in my mind you know challenges all those challenges of positive psychology and the well-being field that it's a happyology that it's superficial you know it really encompasses the whole human experience so you know thank you for the work you're doing in that regard because I think you've provided depth you know to the field in that way as well and I know that you're doing a lot of work with schools at the moment and businesses and um, in your capacity as director of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience so can you tell me a little bit about about that work and that recent iteration Yes, yeah, so um, that's really the mainstay of our work at the moment, working mm. with schools. And I'm particularly, I'm excited about two projects. So one is that we, Dr. Denise Quinlan and I, have just finished um, the Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, which is... Um, Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's a, meant to be a really practical mm. handbook for um, the wellbeing team in a school who are just getting to grips with how to kind of start that journey. And they might be thinking, okay, well, what really, Rhiannon, it came from the fact that people would come to us, schools would come to us and say, right, we get it. We're on board. We understand that wellbeing is really important. We just don't know where to start. Mm. So how do we start? What do we, what are we meant to do? Um, So that book has been written with that in mind. It's practical. It's full of case studies. We've talked to lots of people at um, Geelong. Um, borrowed your wisdom and um, and so it's very much designed knowing how busy those educators are it's a kind of quick read and so that's been the big project and the other things that are really exciting is that we work with a community of practice around well-being here in Christchurch with all the secondary schools all coming together for termly professional learning and this year we they also bring their students so we have student representatives and wellbeing teams from each of the secondary schools to come and share their learning and share their resources and experiences. And I'm loving the collective impact and the potential that that has to just take wellbeing beyond the school gates. And, you know, the collective wisdom that you've been able to draw on for this guide to whole school wellbeing, Lucy, I'm sure I can't wait to read it. Can you share with our listeners who may be educators, who may be um, those educators or leaders in school thinking, how do I start? Can you share some of your insights from that collective wisdom? Yeah, some of the key findings are the importance of taking it slowly to start off with. Um, We wouldn't recommend that you start by teaching wellbeing and resilience in your school to start off with. You know, we very much align with Geelong's learn it, live it, 
teacher embedded model. Um, and combined with that, distributing the um, well-being team, you know, the, the leadership as much as you can so that you haven't just got one or two people responsible, but you've really got people from all of the stakeholders represented. So um, you get students involved right from the beginning in a partnership. You're working with your community to understand how they view well-being and what the needs are and, and really encouraging their participation from the ground up so that you're co-creating. Um, and we think that's a much more um, realistic, sustainable and embedded way to go. It, may, it means it's quite messy. <laughs> oh, yes. Changes, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, Rihanna, I really loved your insights that really struck with me when we spoke, when I was researching the book, about the importance of coaching. And that has been reflected back in so many of the conversations we've had in preparing this book is that schools have really woken up to the fact that coaching is the kind of the bedrock um, and the mm. framework that um, well-being, you know, can spring from. If you're having good coaching conversations, if you're taking a coaching-based approach yeah. to understanding what's going on in your school and those dynamics, that is well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of our my colleagues from the Institute came back from a recent coaching conference and she was very, very excited by that entire experience. And I think it was Tony Grant who said something along the lines of the quality of our conversations determines the quality of our organisation. And I think that really encapsulates the potential for coaching, you know, to affect organisational culture and change and, and well-being as a part of that. I cannot wait to read the book. I know I've said it once, but I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, I'd love to hear about news. I know that, you know, you really are, um, you have your finger on the pulse, I suppose, of POSED in New Zealand. And I am sure New Zealand is, is flourishing in that regard. Can you tell me a little bit about where New Zealand schools are at collectively in terms of positive education? Yes, yeah, so I'm really enjoying um, the difference of yeah. positive education here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So the first big difference is that we are ditching, officially ditching the phrase positive education because we yes. feel it is American. And it's limiting. Yeah, and yeah, and we are a bicultural nation. You know, we have this bicultural foundation and we live in a multicultural society, but we are mm. bicultural first and foremost. And so everything we do in the well-being Hawara space has mm -hmm. to reflect our indigenous cultural knowledge. And mm. so very fast, steep learning curve for me, um, understanding, you know, I'm a girl from North London and yes. <laughs> um, I'm learning as much of Māori te reo and tikanga um, customs yeah. as I can. And I really, my big challenge is also um, bringing that scientific perspective and working alongside the Mana Whenua facilitators, the, the Māori facilitators, and combining lived experience um, and cultural heritage with, you know, empirical, quite often yes. American science. And so yeah. I like that challenge. I like that they are challenging everything I've ever learned. Um, and it just makes it much more of a partnership. Um, so everything we do here has to be in partnership with Māori, um, full participation and partnership. So that's, I really respect that. Yeah, 
and we have so much to learn from you guys in that way and what a that's so much more meaningful and it, it's it's more holistic I think and the terminology of positive education as you rightly said doesn't allow for that necessarily so I look forward to watching the movement evolve in New Zealand and I know just probably one last note I wanted to make was that you've recently been in a TED talk and yeah. um yes and <laughs> which I think is going to become available shortly so can you tell me about how that came about um, so, um, yeah, I was asked to do a TED Talk about like, four years ago. I think it was quite soon after Abby died. And um, Kyla, who is the sort of head of TED here in Christchurch, I said to her, how do you know if you're ready to do a TED Talk? She said, you have to be up to your armpits in your subject matter. And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah okay, I, I'm definitely, definitely feeling that. But at the time, there was all much, too much going on in my life. And um so strangely, this year I decided to do the TED Talk two weeks before our book deadline. So I don't know why Good I thought timing. that would be <laughs> But um, um, actually, I do know why I said yes and chose to do it now, because the Christchurch Town Hall had reopened. Mm. And so it was an opportunity to stand in that great building and be part of the rebuild of our community and celebrate that incredible you know rejuvenation and renaissance so that felt good and it was 10 years of ted and yeah, uh, yeah so it's fun i've been laughing my husband is off to do a four minute talk live talk at an event this evening a builders sponsor by a building company um it's called they have a female version it's called broadly speaking when women get together and discuss things and they have oh. a male version they have a male version called Hardly Speaking. <laughs> it's great. So he's been asked to go and talk about mental health and we've been laughing in our house because he said to me the other day, I'm doing four minutes. How on earth did you do 18 minutes? Oh, so, I know. But it's what great. What's it like? You, well, it's yeah. just great seeing him talk to, um, to builders. And, um, yeah, he's always a good champion for mental health and telling it as it is and and in his own way and and obviously that is really important isn't it in well-being that people can make sense of this material in their own way and use language that fits with them and talk to the people that matter to them in in their own ways so um, i'm not allowed along tonight because Are you not? i'm well i'm not a man um, yeah. oh yes oh is it it's men only okay yeah. Yeah, the men go together to hardly speak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if only I could be a fly on that wall. <laughs> so How wonderful. Yeah. Well, you so know, I think. All sorts of different directions in our family. Yeah, that's fair. And what, what's his background, Lucy, your husband? What work does he do? So we met in France. Um, he was a foreign exchange broker. He's been a builder for 20 years. And, um, yeah, so he is a... Um, yeah, he's a, a builder who understands and is in touch with his own self-awareness around mental health. Uh, you yeah. know, I think we've learned about dogs on the beach in the morning and we've learned a lot from each other about how we feel and function. It's so fabulous and so important and it kind of just reminds me of working with young people too, <laughs> you know, how you really need to tailor your approach so that your the message is accessible and... Um, yeah, you don't say it in your way, you say it in their way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally, yeah. 
Well, Lucy, it has been such a pleasure to speak to you as always. And I'm just so inspired by all the work you're doing. And um, I'm very motivated to come over and visit New Zealand and a few New Zealand schools, actually, because it really sounds like there's some significant work being done over there in in conjunction with you and many others and, and also the Maori people, which is so, so inspiring to me. And I'm really looking forward to uh, reading the book, as I've said. So when will that actually be out? I think um, we're hoping that the book will be out for our Wellbeing in Education New Zealand conference in April and your PISA conference in April. So sadly, they're on the same weekend, so that wasn't very well organised this year. We won't be there in person, but we'll ship Mm. you some books over. Fantastic. I'm sure our Australian and New Zealand educators will be thrilled in April and hopefully many more outside of Australia and New Zealand. Um, Well, thank you so much for your time, Lucy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Rhiannon, for having me. It's always good to talk to you. And um, yeah, I've really enjoyed this. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to refer to the fact sheet, which is available on our website at www.instituteofpositiveeducation.com.